Welcome to Six Feet from Normal, a podcast dedicated to covering untold stories of the COVID-19 pandemic, brought to you by reporters at Medill News Service. I'm Joe Snell. I'm Alec Bose. I'm Sarah Wilson. Today, we look at one of the biggest topics from the past few weeks, voting during this pandemic. As people from the average citizen to the president himself debate the safest way to get to the polls in November, mail-in and absentee ballots have been under scrutiny. We'll hear from Audrey Klein, the National Policy Director at Vote at Home, a nonprofit dedicated to ensuring a secure, safe, and equitable election. We'll also hear from Patricia McKnight, a reporter at the Journal Sentinel in Milwaukee. Patricia covered the recent controversial elections in the state. Finally, we'll speak with our colleague, Kiara Versalone, and hear about her reporting on what Florida County election officials are doing to encourage safe voting. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. When you do uh, all mail-in voting ballots, you're asking for fraud. People steal them out of mailboxes. People print them, and then they sign them, and they give them in. And the people don't even know where they're double-counted. Because when that starts happening, you don't have a a fair — you have a rigged system. You have a rigged system. That was President Trump earlier this week. As states across the country consider increased access to mail-in voting, Trump's administration has drummed up attacks on the voting method by citing concerns of fraud. But that's just not true, according to Audrey Klein, a national policy director at Vote at Home. The organization works towards giving everyone in the country the ability to receive a ballot at their home and also to find solutions to accessing that ballot if they're away. Sarah and I spoke with Audrey about how Vote at Home is educating voters about the safety of mail-in voting and also how they are working with election officials on security concerns. All right, Audrey, can you tell us a little bit about Vote at Home? Our goal is to get everyone in the United States the ability to proactively receive a ballot in the mail uh, at their home and then be able to to vote it, but also create a system that has uh, comprehensive solutions to any other problems that they might have to accessing the ballot. So in-person solutions, um, accessible solutions. uh, Sometimes we even have traveling uh, vote centers like we do here in Colorado. It's literally a trailer on, on the back of a truck that'll pull up outside of a concert venue or a park and you can vote from there. Uh, we want as many people as possible to have as many options as possible to exercise their right to vote. States right now, you know, we have vote by mail states and then we also have states with different absentee ballot restrictions and requirements. Some need an excuse and others don't. Could you kind of explain that process for us? Sure, it's chaos. Every state has the ability to regulate their own elections. So what you see is a patchwork of laws across the country that make different experiences for different people. So when you cross state lines, you might have an entirely different system that you're walking into. Some states still require an excuse to get an absentee ballot. Uh, That is sort of the original way that these came about. Um, Started in like the 1800s, people were voting by mail in the Civil War. And so that is, in in our view, a really antiquated way to, to do it. We think that everyone should have universal access to an absentee or a mail ballot. The terminology is a little different, but generally it means the same thing. There are some rare cases where absentee ballots have been so heavily regulated that legislatures have just like gone in a different direction and they said, okay, well, we're not going to change absentee rules, but we are going to create mail ballots. So some places have both, which 
just complicates it even further. We rate states on a scale of one to five based on voters' ability to access the ballot. And we put out a report a couple weeks ago that uh, rates states by stars. And it was really geared towards the 2020 election um, as to how easy it's going to be to vote uh, a mail ballot. What kind of systems do states need to build in order to better prepare for voting at home? I think it's important to note that every state has a vote by mail or an absentee ballot process already. And in fact, they, they kind of have two sides of the system. One is, uh, it's called UOCAVA, and that's a, that's a long acronym for um, overseas or military voters. And then there's also sort of the domestic side. But generally, everybody already does this to some extent. Now, what we recommend from there is to have very secure and very accurate databases and then also have processes to verify that a voter is getting the ballot and then th- that voter is the one who actually voted the ballot once it returns. So we recommend things like signature verification systems because citizenship and, and things like that, your eligibility to vote, that's handled on the voter registration side and there's not a whole lot of changes happening right there. Things are sort of happening around who is voting this mail ballot that showed up at the elections division. And that is the easiest way to do that without causing a barrier to the voter is by signature verification. And then the final piece of that is that we recommend that you couple that with the ability to quote unquote cure any deficiencies. So it's not uncommon for someone to forget to sign their ballot or last year I broke my hand. And so I was kind of concerned that my signature might not be the same. So I was like being very careful about it. But if there's any discrepancy there, they can notify the voter and say, we're not really sure if this was you. And then you also have the opportunity to say, yes, it was, and make sure that your vote is counted. We see estimates and bill proposals for, you know, billions of dollars needed for states to kind of implement um, vote by mail. What specifically would that money go towards? I mean, that is a very complicated question because there's so many proposals out there. Uh, Sherrod Brown actually... um, put out a new one today. So I haven't dug into the details of that one, but I thought his was interesting just on the top lines that I've read um, that he actually splits that money. Um, one half of it would go to ensuring that everyone can get an, um, an absentee ballot. And then the other half would go um, as more discretionary funding down to the localities, which we think is, is an interesting point to make because um, not all jurisdictions are equal. So, you know, this one might need a scanner, but this one might need um, help with paying for postage or something. So um, having a little bit of discretionary funding there makes a lot of sense to me. Some of the other proposals, they vary wildly. We think that every jurisdiction could get the security, the equipment and the staffing and the space they need at about, I think it was 1.2 billion was the high end. Those are sort of internal estimates from the National Vote at Home Institute. But... Other groups are, are adding on um, costs for things like voter communications, um, PPE at in-person locations. And, and so the things vary, I mean, drastically. So the, the most expensive things are, are generally just the ability to mail the ballot and then process them back in. And, um, and those like minimum baseline to get everyone in the country a ballot and process it, we want to say is just around a billion. So we did get a chance to kind of look at that report you talked about, um, you know, kind of analyzing each state's 
readiness um, for November. Could you give us insight about, you know, specific states that are most equipped to kind of implement this by November and why they're so strong? Sure. Uh, the ones that, that we think are the most equipped uh, generally show up as a surprise to people who don't you know live in this space. Um, and they're Arizona and Montana. We think that they could just pop up to a full vote by mail system in like no problem. And it would actually save them a ridiculous about, amount of money and effort. Um, so in particular, Arizona is an interesting one because they already, they're hovering at about 80% vote by mail. They have what's, uh, what's called a permanent list. So people signed up for their absentee ballot and they like checked a box on it that said, I want to continue to get this ballot and they do, and it gets sent out every year and it's no problem. So that's how the vast majority of people in Arizona vote already. What would make it easier for them is if they were able to consolidate their in-person polling places into a model that's similar to Colorado or California or Oregon and and Washington, because so few people are actually using those in-person spaces that it would save them a lot of money in staffing, um, overhead costs, machines, things like that. And then Montana is very similar. They're at about 70%. By modeling, do you kind of mean like these like regional voting centers that we've been seeing in California? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, my expertise comes from Colorado because this is where I live um, and it's, it's, we think it's the best. Um, but yeah, my um, voting center is just three blocks away from my house. I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate. But even then we have, you know, it's based off of population in Colorado. So for every and don't quote me on these numbers, but it's like every 30 or 50,000 people, you get like a vote center. And and what's important about that is um, only 5% of people in Colorado actually use those in-person services. So, uh, you know, there's no lines ever. We don't do that. Um, but you've seen places that have done, you know, consolidating polling places into a vote center without the mail ballot component and it's gone it's gone poorly so uh like harris county in texas did this uh for the super tuesday primary and so did la county in california they chose to sort of you know do like a little bit of a half measure there and it just didn't go well so um if you look at their sort of neighboring areas like orange county california they went all the way and they did vote by mail plus vote centers no problems saved them a ton of money yeah, Audrey, and on the flip side, which states do you think um, do not have the structures or policies in place? I, that's a hard question because it's not that it's not that anything's impossible. I think that we're dealing with more questions of political will. And so if you're looking at places like Tennessee and Texas that are that are just not interested in making it easier to access an, an absentee ballot, uh, that's where you're running into problems. So you see articles, um, I think there was a woman believe it was in Texas that she's 60 years old, but she's also in a high risk category um, because of some sort of, I think it's hypertension. She's very concerned about going in person to vote. And so she wanted to apply for a mail ballot, but she's not allowed to because the age cutoff in Texas is 65 years. So in Texas, you cannot get an absentee ballot without a valid excuse or being over the age of 65. She does not qualify. um, And so she's actually suing and, and there's a lot of litigation around that. But um, the governor there has said it's, I I think he was even quoted as saying it was laughable that anyone under the age of 65 would require or need um, an absentee ballot. And and that is is the kind of barrier that we're not sure we can get past. 
I want to kind of ask about whether or not all male voting could affect turnout. Obviously, you know, we expect it to maybe affect it in a positive way, but I'm thinking about all the roadblocks, you know, and physical voting, um, work schedules and long lines and transportation issues. Could a vote by mail uh, method make voting more accessible for some communities? Absolutely. That's another one of those things that the, the research is um, is quickly sort of going out of date because we're living in a in just a very different this is a very different experience right now. But generally, you see turnout rates go up um, when you increase uh, the availability and accessibility of mail ballots. It, it depends on what kind of election you're talking about. You see historically, you see like smaller bumps in a presidential year because there's so many like the interest is already so so high. We have research that shows in off-year elections and down-ballot elections, um, you see a, 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 a pretty significant bump in turnout. And so, especially here in Colorado, you see um, the increase in turnout, you see an increase in accessibility, you see an increase in equity, but then you also see a massive decrease in cost. So Colorado saves about $6 per vote compared to the, the, the former system. Can you explain what you mean by an increase in equity? Sure. You see that there are um, really almost any way that you cut the data, um, demographically, socioeconomically, you see uh, all like the tide carrying all boats upwards. Um, so you see equitable increases in turnout across um, demographic lines. Audrey, there's been a lot of talk in the news recently about uh, voting at home, um, can lead to a rigged election. So what would you say to some of the people that would argue that? I disagree. And so does the data. We like to point people to the Heritage Foundation. Um, They are sort of traditionally voter fraud alarmists, and they have a big voter fraud database that they love to to talk about. And we also love to talk about it too, because we think it's, um, it's a really classic case of, I don't think that means what you think it means. Um, They have analyzed millions and millions of votes over the past um, 20, 30 years. And they've found a total of 1,300 cases of vote fraud across the country. And um, I think only 100, about 145 of them have ever been um, convicted. And it had to do with mail ballots. That is a ridiculously small amount of fraud, which is great. We love that. I am also very, very concerned um, about having a secure election. These are these are issues that I work on every day. Um, that does not mean that it is something that happens often. Um, and even in those cases, they have gotten caught. So you're seeing, I mean, those numbers are just astronomically small. That doesn't mean that it's not an issue that we're not currently working on all the time. Um, I think that having a secure election and having the processes Um, both on the policy side, but also in the way that you implement an election, we think they are incredibly important. And we put our back into it every day um, to ensure that those numbers stay insignificant. While many states look to expand vote by mail, Wisconsin was one of the last states to hold in-person voting during the primaries on April 7th. Patricia McKnight, a recent journalism graduate from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, took a photo that day that went viral. 
It depicted long, socially distant lines, masked voters, and a woman in the foreground holding a sign that said, this is ridiculous. The image represents the struggle states have when a pandemic interrupts democracy. We chatted with Patricia about what she experienced that day and what it could mean for the rest of the country moving forward. Patricia McKnight, thank you so much for joining us. We're honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for reaching out. I really do appreciate it. You were uh, voting and uh, covering an election that at least one of the last uh, notable states to be voting in person. Take us back to that day. What did that look like? I got to Washington High School, which was my designated polling place uh, here in Milwaukee. I mean, the line was incredible and not in a good way. It was, as I was walking to the back of the line, um, you know, I saw Jennifer in her sign and I was like, you know what, this, this is pretty ridiculous. Before speaking to Jennifer, I spoke to several uh, senior citizens and they said that they had been standing in line for almost two hours and you know, people were out there with walkers and some had canes. And it was really, uh, you know, spectacular to see, you know, people in my community, they want to go vote and have their voices heard, even if that means, you know, standing outside with a walker and with canes to go vote. I was frustrated. I didn't plan on being there that long. And actually, I didn't vote at the first time I went there. I went to Washington High School three different times. The first two times, I didn't vote because the line was just ridiculous. The third time, I waited for my mom to get off of work. And uh, she's a nurse. And I was like, uh, I should probably, you know, wait for her um, so she doesn't have to, you know, stand in line uh, alone. And that's when we were in line for about hour 30, hour 45 minutes to go vote. As a journalist, when I was out there the first time and I was speaking to these elderly citizens um, and when they got to the door to actually go vote, uh, some of the poll workers were like, oh, there's a senior citizen entrance. And they were livid. They were like, you didn't tell us this when we first got in line. It, it was it was crazy. That, I think, would be frustrating for anybody. Were people sort of really sort of in it for the long haul and they just were very, um, you know, committed to that uh, civic duty of voting? Or did they just walk out of line? Some people did. Some people, you they were like, you know, this is ridiculous. And they were swearing expletives and they were like, you know what, I'm not doing this. And then some people were complaining, but they were still in line. <laughs> and I was one of those people. And when I was talking to one senior citizen who, after she got out of line, she's like, I, you know, stood in line for this. And, you know, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be going through this. Uh, and, you know, it just proves like the resilience of Milwaukee um, and out being out, you know, risking your lives, our lives, you know, to go vote um, in the midst of a pandemic. It's really uh, it was something that I, I'll never forget and that I've never been through. And I hope we don't have to do it again in our next primary in August. What are you sort of hearing, like, in terms of the conversations that you have with your friends around voting? Um, like, do I, I think, you know, the conversation has shifted so drastically in the last few months. But I'm sort of curious to know what conversations um, between different generations are looking like, especially when the pandemic itself 
seems, you know, to impact older Americans, uh, not necessarily sparing younger Americans, but, you know, there definitely is sort of a, uh, a concern there. Can you talk about that a little bit if you've had those conversations? Yeah, my friends and I still plan on voting like we did in April. We want our lives to be as normal as possible. You know, still thinking about, um, like, I, uh, my grandma, she's, you know, older. She's 75 and uh, miss her. I want to see her. But because of the way that I've decided to go about the pandemic, I know that it's not smart. And it would be irresponsible, irresponsible of me, you know, to go visit her, to go see her. Um, and so um, it's just been, you know, different. I know my friends have been doing the same thing. You know, they um, haven't seen certain family members uh, because they go out, they work. My mom, she's a nurse. And so she's in the hospitals and she uh, may or may not come into contact with people with the uh, COVID-19. She still is going to go vote um, like, like me and her did in uh, April. And so you know, we just want our voices to be heard and make sure we do our civic duty. What do you think can be learned from what seemed to be, you know, sort of a at least a logistical nightmare in terms of get people getting in and out in uh, an orderly, timely fashion to vote? What do you think could be learned from that or takeaways from that moving forward as we head towards this extremely consequential election? Um, so I kind of just did an article about uh, whether or not Wisconsin uh, would be able to do a vote at home system for the next upcoming elections. You know, I talked about um, our missing ballots. A lot of people were in those lines because we had thousands of absentee uh, ballots lost in the mail. Um, and so that goes down to whether our county clerks are prepared, whether our you know mailmen and our postal system, you know, is prepared for uh, uh, that volume of mail going out and going in. And, uh, you know, it just makes uh, our uh, legislatures to um, make quicker decisions because, uh, you know, it was a couple days before the election when polls are still going to be open. So that means uh, going forward, we need to make those decisions ahead of time uh, to make sure we have the uh, proper amount of poll workers. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the polls were so congested, because we went from 180 polling places down to five. And so and it was because of lack of poll workers and, you know, the split decision to keep the polls open. And so now that we have the, you know, the time and we know the impact of COVID-19, hopefully our you know legislators and our uh, community leaders, uh, you know, make uh, decisions uh, ahead of time so that so we can prepare. Three counties in Florida, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, are sending vote-by-mail sign-up forms to registered voters to promote absentee voting in the August and November elections. Our colleague, Chiara Vercellone, spoke with an official from Miami-Dade County to learn more about the effort and how it aims to protect voters. So I spoke with Susie Trudy, who is the deputy supervisor of the Elections Department at Miami-Dade County in Florida. And what our conversation was about was really how the county has adapted to the local elections in this time, because Miami-Dade County is the biggest county in the whole state. 
So they conduct elections um, almost every month. So I thought it was really interesting how, for example, they have started sending out vote-by-mail requests to over 700,000 households in the county. They are basically sending these request forms to any voter that doesn't have one on file yet. And they're doing this to promote voting by mail and to giving the opportunity to any voters that one that are afraid of coming to the polls on election day. Um, so they have the opportunity to actually vote from their safety of their house. They said that the key difference of how they're conducting elections this year is really going to be divided in two aspects. The first one being how they're managing the personnel because in years past, maybe they had 10 or 20 polling assistants at the polling stations, whereas this year they are actually expecting more, a higher turnout by voting by mail. So they need to do that shift of, of personnel between the polling stations to actually the office to be able to be efficient on counting those, those ballots. And the second aspect is how much PPE they have how much personal protective equipment they'll have available at both the polling stations and in the offices. They always had hand sanitizer, sanitary wipes, and that kind of thing. But now they've taken, obviously, more measures to protect both the staff and the voters. What did you have to say about um, how they came to that decision? What was that process like? Yeah, so the decision to send the vote-by-mail request to all voters that didn't have one on file actually came from the Miami-Dade County Board of County Commissioners. Um, And it was that higher-up board that directed them to send their request. So it's really not their decision that they decided, oh, well, we're going to do this because we think our voters will be interested. But it was actually from um, they're just following orders from higher above because they don't have the legal authority to change how elections are happening. Um, So I thought that was really interesting to learn because you would think that in a pandemic, those type of rules would be relaxed um, just to keep all voters safe. But at least in Miami-Dade County, it hasn't been like that. Do you know of any other counties um, in Florida or elsewhere that are doing similar things for the election? Yeah, so in Florida, there are several counties that have taken the same approach of that being mailing the request forms, but still maintaining the polling places open because it's not a county decision, really. It's a state decision. So um, unless Florida was to change the statutes to to completely change how elections are carried out this year, the only thing that counties can do is follow the orders from the county board of commissioners to facilitate some voting methods or promote specific voting methods such as voting by mail, but not necessarily um, just eliminating voting in person. That's interesting. Did you have anything else to say that was interesting to you or stuck out? Yeah, so for me, it was really interesting to learn that Miami-Dade County is as the largest county has not stopped carrying out elections this year, regardless of the gravity of the pandemic. So if you look at other states, 
a lot of counties in other states have stopped or postponed uh, municipal and local elections, but in Miami-Dade County, those haven't ceased. Because they are the largest county and they have the uh, largest population in the state, they carry out almost monthly elections, uh, regardless of if it's an election year or not. Actually, the only election that they postponed to August was the April election. That was only postponed because of the gravity of the, of the pandemic in Florida. But they carried out the January, February, March, and even this month's election. They're carrying out as normal, continuing to have uh, polling places open. So the, I think that was really interesting because other states have taken uh, measures to maybe postpone elections as early as March or end of February to June. And Miami-Dade County was not one of those to follow that type of orders. Thanks so much, Kara, for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed sharing um, some of the reporting that I've been doing. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us this week on Six Feet From Normal. We hope you enjoyed these stories. Tune in again next Friday and be sure to share this episode with your friends. In the meantime, check out our website at covidanalyzer.nationalsecurityzone.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Medill on the Hill. Until next time, I'm Joe Snell. I'm Alec Bose. And I'm Sarah Wilson. Take care and stay safe, everyone.